Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. We just launched a brand new golf podcast called Fairway Rollin', where Joe House is joined by a rotating cast of Ringer and Golf World personalities every week. They'll break down the latest in golf headlines and news from social media, keep up with everything Tiger Woods, and delve into the world of golf gambling. The first episode was just released earlier this week, with new episodes being published every Monday going forward. You can download and subscribe to Fairway Rollin' on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. This is Black on the Air. How you guys doing? We're in February. Actually, this is Black History Month. Wow. <laughs> All the jokes, of course. Why is Black History Month the show this month? You know, do you really want to have more days of history? It's what I always joke about. But whatever. I think Cory Booker um, announced he's going to run for president, I think, uh, this morning. Of course, on the first episode of the nightly show of my show... Uh, four years ago now? Damn, you guys, my show was four years ago. I asked him if he was running for president, and I don't know if he said no or he didn't answer, and I threw some weak tea at him because I'm like, you know you run for president. So there you go. He kind of announced my show. Anyhow, um, got a nice show today. Jason Rezaian, who was journalist for The Washington Post, who was captured and held prisoner in Iran for 544 days, is my guest today in his book, Prisoner. Really good book. You guys um, get a firsthand account of what it feels like in a country like that to be taken prisoner. So I talked to Jason. Good conversation. This is I'm taping this. This is Friday today, right before the Super Bowl. So rooting for the Rams. Don't want the Patriots to win. But you might be listening to this after the Super Bowl. So you you already know what happened if you're listening to it then. So I hope the Rams won. Happy about my Lakers right now. Uh, looks like we're getting Anthony Davis. Who knows who else? That's good. A lot of hating going on out there. I don't care. Just bring them home, Lakers. But what I wanted to talk about, because I, I, I don't have a lot to say right now before we get into the interview. But, guys, I've got some really good news for you. I've got some really, really, really good news. And I'll tell you what it is. I am finally starting to think that your boy, Trump... That's right, Tangerine Idi Amin, Pumpkin Pol Pot, the Orange Julius Caesar might lose, you guys. Remember I said, I don't know. I don't know how Trump's going to lose. I hate to make this prediction. You know, I talked about the economy. I talked about this and that. You know, hard for incumbents to lose and this and that. I don't know, you guys. As horrible as I think a person and a president he has been, for some reason, it, it hasn't hurt him. But I think it's starting to turn around now, you know, and he's starting to get kind of desperate, it seems. Like, this whole wall thing has just been ridiculous. And it was so satisfying to see Nancy Pelosi just do what she did. And I tell you, you guys heard me last week. I'm like, just do your fucking job, everybody. People are not getting paid. And uh, the way Nancy did it was amazing. And now people could stop hating on her, by the way. I've, I've always been a Pelosi fan. She, of course, did my podcast. But I've met her several times. Always very nice. But she's got, you know, the most experience in those halls to do the kind of deal-making you have to get done. Still a lot of work to do. But here's the thing. So I think, I think there's a crack now. Trump's getting desperate. His lying has gone to a level not even I predicted, you guys. And it's unbelievable to watch because he lies all the time. He's, he's a casual liar. He's an outrageous liar. He's got about five different lying styles, you know, 
perfected over the years, you know, as his uh, being the sham businessman that he was. You know, even when he was running for president, you know, all politicians lie, of course, but, you know, the kinds of lies he did were just outrageous or whatever, and the accusations. One of his lies that are my favorite, by the way, one of his casual lies is where he says, people are saying, <laughs> it's like, who are these people? He always, he does that one a lot. You guys have seen it. Well, people are saying, but no, no, motherfucker. Nobody's, people aren't saying that shit. You just made that up. There's a person saying it and it's you. That's the only person saying it, you know. That's one of his favorite lies. Okay. Now he has a new form of lying, which is really, really amazing to see. So his intel personnel, the intel chiefs or whatever you want to call them, were speaking, I think, before Congress or whatever. I didn't watch it in detail, but it looked like like a briefing type of thing. You guys probably uh, have more detail about it than I. But they gave their assessment of the world <laughs> and what is go- what is actually going on in the world from a very— Measured and very sober approach. These are our intelligence bureaucrats doing their jobs. These are not politicians, right? And it was very refreshing to hear that, right? You know, there's no spin on it. They're telling us, yeah, blah, 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 this, blah, blah, blah. But of course, they contradicted almost every position Trump has, almost everyone, whether it's a boasty position or a lie or a false promise or whatever it is. It just contradicts it. So Trump, of course, can't take that. And I heard he was seething as he's watching it. By the way, when is he actually president? He's always fucking watching TV all the time. Seriously, somebody needs to, like, change his his password to cable or whatever or do something. We got to get him off of television. But apparently he's watching this and he's getting mad and he has his own press conference. And he's saying that these people were misquoted and... What they said was mischaracterized by the press. It's all fake news. It was live television. It was live. People watched it with their own eyes. He's telling us, here's what's lying now. It's not even the press that's lying. Our president is telling us our own eyes and ears are lying to us, and we should not trust that. It's unbelievable, you guys. And he says it. As if it's true. And by the way, Sarah Huckabee, Colonel Sanders is going to repeat it and going to say the same thing. His believers will probably think the same thing. Yeah, fake news or whatever. It's unbelievable to me. But this is the one that is so outrageous. It just I think it's going to start the crumble is is what I think, you know, and I think uh, I think he may be starting to crack. I really do. And I think. It's this wall thing that is ultimately going to drive him crazy. You know, when you have Ann Coulter and Sean Hannity leading your foreign policy, and then they get mad at you and and you don't know what to do. I mean, that's what you're basing your foreign policy in the world on. You got nothing left in the tank, you know. And I think Trump is finally on empty. I really do. And I think uh, for the first time, I think that any— positive extrapolation you can take from the economy or whatever. Because I always do think the economy is the biggest thing for Americans. You know, if they've, if their pocketbooks are doing well, economy seems to be doing well, good luck getting an incumbent out of office. But Trump has, has so crazified um, his position as president in the world, as a figure, you know, he's certainly not a leader and all this stuff. I think he's finally vulnerable, you guys. And I know it's ridiculous for me to even 
say this like you would think, of course he's vulnerable. How can he get elected again? Guys, this is because it's fucking America. He got elected the first time. That's why I've been nervous about this. He got elected the first time, all right? But I finally have hope. I think it can happen. The big question is, will the Democrats fuck this up? That's the next question. Because who are they going to pick? You know? And they're already fighting amongst themselves. And by the way, I love how much I love how much hate there is on Howard Schultz right now, who used to run Starbucks. And he says, hey, guys, I don't want to be in a party. I just want to be an independent. No, boo, get off the stage. They won't even let him talk. It's hilarious. When I say they, I mean just the— uh, just just the voices out there. People want Trump out of there so bad. They don't want to take any chances of anybody fucking this up. And it's so funny because it's even coming from the press. It's not just like advocates or activists. It's coming from the press, too, like just their treatment on it. It is hilarious. It seems like uh, people want Trump out of there so bad. The collusion of effort is going to be fun to watch. I'm enjoying this, you know. I'm starting to think at the beginning of this, though, I really don't have a firm opinion on who would do the best, who would be the best pick against Trump. And I'm going to say a name that I didn't think before would be viable. But as unrealistic as this sounds, I think Joe Biden actually might be the person that can do it. Now, I don't have a firm, that's not a firm statement from me. In the next couple months, I may change my mind on that, depending on how people do, because we're early right now. We haven't heard enough people speak and what they believe in and what kind of fire they can uh, get around them and that kind of stuff. I don't think Cory Booker has a chance, though. I really don't. And I could talk about it at length another time, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how Kamala Harris does. I think she has a lot of energy around her, but I think with progressives, there could be a disconnect with some of the way She's dealt with crime, I think, in San Francisco. But we'll see how that goes. But I think she's very talented as a politician, so who knows? I feel like Beto's kind of an empty suit, but I don't know, whatever. I didn't understand the whole affection with him earlier. So we'll see, you guys. But that's what I'm thinking. Thinking there's a crack. 2019, it's going to be exciting, man. We get to see these Dems start to have these uh, debates and everything. No way Hillary's coming back, right? No way. That can't happen. And we'll see. So right now, I'm putting some money on Biden. We'll see if he even runs, though. He may feel like uh, he's done. You know, who knows? He's getting kind of old, too. Of course, people really don't care about that anymore. So many rules have been thrown out. People really don't care. I know some people want to see Bloomberg run, but I think he'll run into what Howard Schultz is facing, uh, especially if he runs as an independent. And I don't think he can get the Democratic nomination if he runs with the party. I don't think he's far enough to the left to win the the primaries. I think Biden is the only kind of what you might call a established Democratic moderate, maybe who could win the nomination without going too far left. When I say too far left, I mean, you know, in comparison to the moderate left, I suppose. But we'll see. The energy of the party is kind of with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC. But at the end of the day, we got to get that mofo out of there. That's all I got, guys. Great talk with Jason Rezaian coming up on his prisoner. We'll be right back with that. Thanks. Okay, welcome back. This is a treat for me, guys. I'm very honored to have as a, a guest of mine. 
somebody who's, you could say, really has gone through it and has lived and written to tell the tale. Jason Resign is here. Jason, with his book, Prisoner, My 544 Days in an Iranian Prison. Thanks for coming, Jace. Thank you so much for good having to me see on, you. Larry. Great to see you. It's really, I told you, you came, I said, it's really good to see you. I first became fully aware of you. I was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. This was the year before I hosted it. Um, I think Cecily Strong was the host that year. I wasn't there. Yeah. Wait, Jason, you weren't there? Where were you? No, of course you were. My big brother was there that yes. night, not me. Yes. But I remember there was a shout-out to you yeah. there. It was very thoughtful. Yeah. And it just, for me, it really, oh, man, it really, like, hammered home what the purpose of even that event is yeah. and how important just— what what the act of journalism is and how dangerous it is and and how we even take for granted, you know, the freedoms that we have here in that act, you know. It's been uh, brought home to me uh, yeah. multiple times in multiple ways the I last bet. few years, first through my own experience, more recently my colleague Jamal Khashoggi, mm-hmm. um, who I was just getting to know, uh, wrote uh-huh. for the same section of the Washington Post that I did. But, yeah, I mean, and, and now that I'm— I'm back and kind of uh, sort of piecing my life back together, yeah. writing about my experiences. Um, when I went back to the Post, they basically said, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, I'd like to keep writing about Iran. Yeah. And they said, well, that's cool because, you know, we, we don't have anybody there anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, and we're not sending anybody there anymore. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of weird to have somebody writing just about Iran from yeah. from Washington. I said, well, I agree with that. Why don't I write about press freedom issues as well? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I take a crack at, at stories of, of journalists yeah. who are imprisoned, murdered, uh, otherwise threatened uh, around the world. Yeah. And, you know, these are not stories that traditionally have been the ones that get the most clicks. Mm-hmm. So it's been a great credit to the Post to see them yeah. get behind this in more than just word. You know, yeah. there's a lot of action behind it. And your story is interesting because you kind of went somewhere and journalism kind of found you in a sense. Yeah. Is that kind of accurate? I mean, yeah, look, it, I, it seemed like reading your book— which, by the way, uh, there's a certain affection for Iran in there, which I find real interesting. Even in the way you say goodbye to your, your captor yeah. has a kind of—I saw that as a kind of affection for this this place, even though it's a complicated relationship, too. You know, was some, Do you think something was calling you there when you went there? I get the feeling—not, you know, in that real big spiritual sense. Yeah. You know, I think for me— um, I guess I should set it up. I mean, I grew up in a Iranian-American family. Uh-huh. My mom was from Illinois, not San, Irani. San Francisco area? Grew up in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, just outside in Marin County. Mm-hmm. My dad came from Iran. He, he so he came, was an immigrant. He was mm-hmm. an immigrant that came in the late 50s. He went to school uh, in, in Northern California where mm-hmm. he met my mom. Uh, who was a Midwestern girl, and two mm-hmm. of them got married. And, you know, little by little, as time wore on, my dad started bringing his relatives from Iran to uh-huh. the U.S. And this predates the revolution. This is, this is now your dad has, like, the pre-Shah experience of Iran. Exactly. And he brought people over during the Shah pre-Khomeini experience. And after, but, you know, yes. he had built his whole little army around him uh, of cousins and yeah. sisters and, and brother. Um, you know, by by the late 1970s. It's so, kind of that classic immigrant story. You 100%. Know, first person and, you comes know, over, pulls everybody, pulls everybody over. Right. And at that time, there was no such thing as, you know, anti-Iranian sentiment. Right, I know. It's so true. People there, don't know about that. There was yeah. no Islamophobia either. Right. I mean, how, yeah, how yeah, many yeah. Muslims were there in your neighborhood in 1975? Occurred. You know, yeah. um, maybe some, but not 
it, it wasn't seen as uh, a threatening no. um, it was encroachment a, on our, our way of life, the yeah. way that some people have tried to spin it over the past 20 years or so. And nor was the Muslim religion either. Exactly. You know, it wasn't seen as a threat to, exactly. to either Westernism or Christianity. And I think, unfortunately, right. or sadly for me and so many other Iranian-Americans, you know, we became the uh, sort of target mm-hmm. of that first round of anti-Islam uh, because of the hostage crisis. Right, in 1979 and the— uh, I guess the students, I guess they call them. Yeah, yeah, the students, yeah. yeah. The students following the line of yes. the imam or the ayatollah, yeah. Yeah, that, those were some, that was a fire off of some embers that I think had been burning for a while, it seemed. Since the late yeah. 19, or the mid-1950s yeah. when, you know, we overthrew the, the democratically elected prime minister and reinstalled the Shah who had been sort of— uh, sent into exile momentarily, and then came back. Yeah. Uh, so it was a moment where Iran was on the cusp of, of becoming maybe the Middle East's first real democracy. Yeah. Uh, and that didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, and so there was a lot of anger and uh, frustration about that. And the the revolution that came in 1979 was not an Islamic revolution. Mm-hmm. It was like any other revolution. There were different groups. There were people who wanted to see, you know, a communist uh, form mm-hmm. of government. Others wanted to see, you know, real secular democracy. Uh, but these uh, these Islamists led by Ayatollah Khomeini really co-opted the whole thing in yeah. the final days. Said there's going to be a seat at the table for everybody. Uh, and then they got Oops. around that table and they started cutting everybody's heads off. <laughs> Ooh, you know? man. So it was, you know, it was brutal in the way that, that yeah. a lot of revolutions end up being. Uh, and so for me, uh, as a kid who was born mm-hmm. right around that time, I was born in 1976. Right. Um, you know. I grew up with this perception of Iranians that I had right in front of me in my family yeah. that didn't match up with what I saw on television yeah, and in the news. You're like a German in World War II in America or right, something. Exactly. Or, Who cho- yeah. Whose family chose to be in America yeah. because they didn't want to be in Germany, right? right. And, you know, people or Japanese-American, like, yeah. And, right. you know, Even I, more I, so because of Pearl Harbor. Right? I have a sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, she's Japanese-American, and, mm-hmm. you know, her grandparents spent time in those internment camps mm. here in California. And, right. you know, it's obviously a lot of checkered history uh, everywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was really important to kind of really unpack the Iranian experience and mm-hmm. the Iranian experience in America. What was that like growing up for you then? Did you feel like an outsider no matter where you were, even though you had this kind of uh, community bubble, I guess, in a sense, right? I didn't grow up feeling like an outsider because nobody f- made me feel like one. Okay. We would have friends over. We had a big house uh, that had a little bit of land. So, mm-hmm. you know, kids would come and play. And, mm-hmm. you know, all of my uh, American buddies, uh, you know, would eat Persian food that was put in front of them. <laughs> right. And, you know, at first they look at it and say, that looks like poop. I don't want to eat that. <laughs> and then finally they put a little bit in their mouth and like, well, that's really good. Can I this come back? This poop is and fantastic. Eat? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Persian poop Why is Why have amazing. I not had poop all, my, all these years? What's wrong with me? <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's how it starts, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And um, honestly, it wasn't until after September 11th, which happened to be, uh, you know, the first time I traveled to Iran, I was 25. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I never went as a kid. Uh, but after 9-11, it was the first time that I thought to myself, okay, people that I know and have known for a, no- a long time, not mm-hmm. all of them, but some of them, all of a sudden look at me a little bit differently. Right. You know, part of that's because I traveled in the Middle East. Part of it might be because 
I had a beard. And part of it was probably because I had a dad with a funny accent, you mm-hmm. know, who they knew came from this country that they're supposed to hate. Yeah. And so that's been, you know, my experience of it. And post 9-11, did you feel like, okay, where am I right now? What's, yeah. What's going on? Totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know. Trying I, to, like, where are my feet? Where are they going to be planted? And right. I watched this, mm-hmm. and, you know, leading up to, to you know, 9-11, I was in college, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the late 90s. I traveled a lot, you know, people forget, but I think that it was kind of 1995 to early 2000s when young Americans started traveling a lot internationally. Mm -hmm. The dollar was strong uh, and the world was more accessible than it had ever been. Mm -hmm. And so I was one of those people that that really went to a lot of different places. And um, after 9-11, it was sort of like, you know, there was this outpouring of love, if you remember, you know, in mm-hmm. the days and weeks that followed. And then we just kind of destroyed that really mm. quickly by, um, you know, starting these forever wars and, and getting involved in things. Do you things think that, it was Afghanistan or, or Iraq? Iraq. Yeah, right? I, I mean, feel I like think, it was Iraq. I mean, I think Afghanistan, Afghanistan, people are still like, yippee, kaye, yeah, totally. And I, I remember <laughs> thinking that, that to mm-hmm. myself, but, you know, this is so— Weird because, you know, the whole world, even in Iran, and this is what was really interesting for me because I had just come back from Iran the, for the first time. Uh, I, I visited— was pre-9-11? Pre-9-11. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, I remember turning on TV uh, on, you know, the 9-11, mm-hmm. and they were, you know, showing images from around the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, in Tehran, there were these candlelight vigils, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really the first time you saw something besides— uh, you know, demonstrations of hate towards America. Yeah. You know, the, nobody was burning the flag that day. Death to right? There was no death to America. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, we feel for you. And um, and for me, who had just come back from there, it jibed with everything that I had experienced. But Americans were taken aback by that. Like, mm-hmm. How is that possible? Um, and so, you know, at that at that point, I'd already become very interested in, in writing from there. I just didn't know how I was going to do it. I studied creative writing in school. Um, I thought that I could string a sentence or two together, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get a job. Right. Um, That's a fact. You know, and, um, you know, it took me uh, several years of traveling back and forth and, uh, you know, submitting freelance articles, knowing back and forth to, to Iran. Iran, yeah, okay. knowing that um, that there weren't other people doing that, right, right. So uh, it it created this possibility for me to create a little bit of a body of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was your impression of Iran during that time? This is during what periods, like the early aughts? Yeah, so from two thousand one to two thousand nine, when I moved okay. there, I probably made twenty trips. Mm-hmm. You know, from various varying lengths, from a couple of weeks to six months. Mm-hmm. So between two thousand one and two thousand nine, I probably spent some total of two years. Americans kind of, even though we tend to view everything as one, <laughs> we're very uh, narrow in how Americans kind of view the world. Like Middle East is just Middle it's East. It's just this you know? place, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I mean, but it did seem like. There was a distinction between Iraq and Iran during that period because sure. Saddam Hussein became the face of that He became the of, face of it. And I think mm-hmm. in Iran, the people were really nervous mm-hmm. that are we going to be next? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you go back and read some of the uh, Cheney Rumsfeld history, I mean, there's this great I read line. it every night. Yeah, I didn't exactly. go back. That's my bedtime <laughs> reading. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, I think that one of them had a saying was, you know, uh, Real men go to Tehran, you know, oh, uh, and, you know, like 
Iraq is for pussies, but, you know, uh, Iran is the place that we're going to really make our mark. And I think that was that was in the in the in not in the back of some of their minds, but Uh in the front of their minds, you know. Uh, But Iran posed a really different set of problems Uh for for, you know, the possibility of invading. One, you've got a population that's like overwhelmingly pro Western, Mm -hmm. educated. It's a big country. It's, you know, twice as big as Iraq three times as big as Afghanistan in terms of population, 80 right. million people, super young, um, and already sort of inclined to uh, thinking like we do in some yeah. ways. Um, and at the same time, the the leadership there was not, you know, people talk about it as this monolith because mm-hmm. there's an Ayatollah, he's a supreme leader. Right. It's as though, you know, you keep our system and you put the Pope at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's internal politics. There's... There's, you know, factional uh, dissent and disagreement and back and forth and uh, intrigue and secret negotiations mm-hmm. with our allies. And, um, you know, Iran's a complicated— It enough. always seemed to me from the outside that Iran was kind of—I don't know if bipolar is the right word, but but it seemed to have a dual identity from my perspective because having met some young people from Iran, yeah, I always felt like— the young people, I'll generalize, are very Western in what they want out of life and yeah. what it seems their values are. But it's almost like their parents, the government, is what I'm saying, has a completely different idea of how of what that country should be. You I th- know, it, totally. I mean, I think, you, and it, you, it feels like they're at odds. But we have the general impression of the latter of what the government is. Is I, that fair? I or? think that's totally fair. I've mm-hmm. been talking about with this with people recently that you know. Foreign nationals, journalists, normal folks that I talk to, whatever country they're from, mm-hmm. they always say, why, why is it in America that you guys can't disassociate uh, a country's population from its regime? People can't do it with us, too. You know, like, <laughs> but exactly. And, you know, that's what that's I say Americans. to them. No, well, it's just true. It, yeah, well, exactly. actually, you're right. It's a lot of us. But, but, but <laughs> you know, it, that's been a, a, a knock on us for a long time. Sure. I think a lot of it is our own fault in the media. Absolutely. Right? I mean, Completely. I wish uh, we did a better job. And so that was part of the reason I went to that, to okay. Iran. Yeah. You know, it was like, okay, here's this place that we see in one shade of black and one shade of white, and that's yeah. it. And I'm here to tell you there's a lot of color there, and let me give it to you yeah. by telling you stories of real people. And, and that's it, what I, I want to do. And it seemed like your focus from the beginning was more on culture than, say, politics. Is that right? I mean, that's—I I think part of that mm-hmm. was um, a function of necessity. I was going to say it's probably right? a safer ground, It was a too, safer right? ground, yeah. and, you know, it wasn't like I was writing for the Washington Post right away, right? You know, yeah. I was writing for— You kind of pitched it, pitched you know, yourself to them, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And— um, you know, I was following the politics closely. I was trying mm-hmm. to to uh, learn the place and what makes it tick. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more annoying than, you know, reading uh, a journalist <laughs> on a place that they right. know nothing about. Was, was <laughs> there know? a lot that was surprising to you? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I let myself be surprised. Oh, great. Uh, That's but awesome. I also, um, I also having had grown up in an Iranian, you know, predominantly Iranian mm-hmm. family— um, I I understood these little idiosyncrasies of right. being Iranian, right? Sure. And, and I wasn't I wasn't necessarily rooted in those. I just recognized them, right? Right. right so right, I, right, and right. I think I had That's sort of yeah. I had the best of both worlds in trying to cover this place from the point of view of somebody who gets it and understands where these uh, 
feelings or uh, attitudes come from, and at the same time, able to explain it to Americans because mm-hmm. I'm an American. And right? as the translator, you're kind of deepening your own understanding of this place and and creating a maybe a newer bond with it that you didn't have before. Right? There were so many moments mm-hmm. in the five years that I lived there before we got arrested where I said to myself. You know, maybe maybe I should just pack it up and go home. But <laughs> yeah. it was just I want to see what happens next. Yeah, yeah. You know, and one of the reasons uh, you kind of give for not packing it in was uh, meeting your eventual wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's that kind of a seminal moment in this story. I think right. Totally. And yeah. when we when we met in the late summer of two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a chance encounter. We both happened to be in Dubai for for a period of time. Yeah. Which uh, I love the callback to this with the interrogator. Yeah. When they asked you about that, which we can talk about in a I second, mean, too. You know, no, that's hilarious, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I'm weak. You know, and people are like, is it too soon to laugh? No, it's not too soon. You got to laugh about this stuff. Well, but. let me tell you something uh, before you go for one of the things that struck me the most, Jason, I have to say, is your use of humor, not only in the book, which made me laugh many times, you know, but in your use of humor as a survival mechanism during your captivity. Totally. You know, and I, I felt it was both your wife, this love that you had, and your ability to maybe deflect it with humor that kind of saved you? 100%. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it continues to save me yeah. uh, right now, and, and I hope always will uh, stick with me. I mean, look, everybody goes through some tough shit in their life. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm not here to judge anybody else's. Right. Uh, but I, and I'm also not here to tell you how to get through, right? Because right, right. a lot of people right. were like, oh, you know, why aren't you more angry? Why aren't you more furious? That's I'm angry. I'm furious. Yeah. But if I, if I, if I respond from anger and fury, I know myself mm-hmm. that's, that's not how I operate best. You're right. It's tough to say because I don't, I, I would like to think I would handle it like that, but I don't know. I might be full of rage. I mean, you just never know what's going to happen to you. When you're in a confined place, mm-hmm. as I was, um, you know, you can end up with a lot of broken bones yourself. Yeah. Uh, either by by punching a wall or having a captor, you know, beat the crap right. out of you if you let your rage show too much. Yes. You know. So for me, laughing about it. In my own mind, mm-hmm. but also, you know, taking my captors down a notch yes, to them which um, was a really important sort of not only a survival mechanism, but um, sort of a, a power play. Yeah. Right. I mean, I I tried to, you know, initially my interrogator, uh, you know, was interrogating me in English. Mm-hmm. Right. He spoke pretty good English. My Farsi is pretty good. As time went on, they tried to move things more towards uh, Farsi to mm-hmm. Persian, um, you know, because I think they understood that if we were doing this in English, I had an advantage that they were never going to be able to make up. Yeah. Right. So I would switch it back to English whenever I could, right. you know. Um, and that was – you learn these things. Yeah. You, you, very subtly, you're like, okay, it's not that I'm thinking to myself, oh, if I, if I you know, start mocking this guy in English, it's going to be mm-hmm. uh, better for me. But it's, it's instinct. It's yeah. nature. So let's go back. So you, you meet uh, your future wife. You yeah. have this time in Dubai, and you realize you want to get married. Well, I mean, it, we, we had this very quick um, – chance encounter mm-hmm. 
And I was, you know, smitten. I mean, you mm-hmm. met her, you, yeah. you know, Yegi's beautiful she's woman. Yeah, and she uh, she's got a lot of energy. And, um, you know, I, I, would be, I was 33 at that point. Yeah. I met a lot of women in my life. This is the first time I, I thought to myself, sure. I'm, I, you know, you, I, I got to make a move here. Right. And uh, she, she, you know, when she talks about Feats that. don't fail me now. <laughs> exactly. When she, when she recounts it, she said, you know, you were so confident. I said, That's thank, thank God that you came across because I was not. You know, so. Yeah, right. Um, and so, I, you know, we started this sort of mm-hmm. courtship because she went home to Tehran and I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't go back for a while. Um, and we you, were, you were in America. I was in Dubai. Okay, you yeah. were, you were in Dubai at the time. Yeah. Well, so after you met her, then you're in Dubai. You guys are kind of separated, but you knew this but is we're a person. talking every day. Right. You know, we're messaging. So it's about three months before I go back to Iran, and and when I arrived, it was as though we were in the middle of a relationship already. Oh wow! And you yeah. know, um, dating in Iran is not easy, right? It's like <laughs> explain. It, well, I mean, Iran <laughs> is 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 a country where. Uh, Premarital sex, mm-hmm. uh, alcohol, uh, you know, even being, you know, seen in public with somebody of the opposite sex mm-hmm. and holding hands is forbidden. I mm-hmm. mean, these days, those rules have kind of relaxed a lot, but those rules are on the books, yeah. right? So, you know, we had this this relationship that um, was pretty um, unique and that we were able to keep it going mm-hmm. as, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend for— uh, for a couple of years, wow. and during that period of time, uh, she became a journalist as well. I mean, she mm-hmm. she had gotten a master's degree in English, and and she's um, from Iran. She's from born and raised okay. in Iran. She never lived out of the U.S. until the day that we were released. Mm-hmm. And she became Bloomberg's Tehran correspondent. Mm. She was a big deal. Yeah, and you know the two of us together were. A Kind of a you know media mini power couple, and know? I like the way you because um, I, I want you to talk about that day when all yeah. of this happened. But your lead up to it is I thought it was very interesting. I, I love when writers um, put me in the place, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and just the way you talked about, I think you guys <laughs> ordered liquor or something like that, or we so or, we had some liquor. You yeah. know, we had like a very you elaborate this, liquor barn because yeah. uh, you know friends who are diplomats are able to get booze. Yeah. You guys have kind of hacked the system in a totally in a nice way, kind yeah. of living it up. Yeah, um, and we had, then we had great life. Yeah, yeah. How, how long were you living that life from when you got married to the day when? I mean, so we would only we were only married for fifteen months when this happened. Okay, so you know, uh, and we never lived together before we got married because we couldn't, right? Yes, uh, but you know. Our life as uh, you know uh, a non-married couple was moving in that direction, and when it, when we got married, it was solidified. We Did, had a beautiful apartment and yeah. a high-rise building. We had booze. We had friends. We, <laughs> we had, had booze, you know, and we had the ability to travel the world. Really, uh-huh. you know, because uh, the Middle East is you know it, it, they call it middle for a reason. I mean, it's, it's pretty close to a lot of different right. places. You yeah. know. And so, and that day, um, what do you remember most about the day when you uh, were abducted? I mean, leading up to the arrest, it was um, some, it was a lot of confusion, mm-hmm. right? Um, she had felt like she was being followed the day before. And by the middle of the afternoon, uh, she called me frantically um, that her email had been hacked and that she had received a message, kind of a blackmail mm. message, 
Um, and our social media accounts have been compromised. Our passwords were changed. So we, you know, we were the target of a cyber attack. And what, what was your concern level at that time? My concern level was, you know, they're messing with us because, uh, you know, they want to read our messages. Somebody's mm-hmm. harassing us. But I, I was not at that level of thinking that somebody's going to show up at our house and, and take us away. Mm-hmm. Um you know, to her credit, she was much more concerned because mm-hmm. she she was from there. She knows her country. She knows her country, her right? And um, you know, I think when uh, when somebody gets thrown in the prison that we get th- got thrown into, mm-hmm. it's never you know over in an hour hour or two. Mm-hmm. You know, this is uh, a maze that you have to work your way out of. Mm. Um, and you know, it was it was jarring confusing uh but still i had this kind of prevailing feeling that this is going to get worked out i'm the washington post bureau chief yeah there's these you know major negotiations going on for the first time between these two countries the iranian uh administration that's that's uh, engaged in these talks with the U.S. and world powers, needs them to go well. The last thing they need is a Washington Post journalist in prison on false charges. Was this while Obama was negotiating the Iran deal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, it was it, it, it was. Or getting, was it pre that? It, it was in the middle of that. Okay. I mean, they were they were just getting to that that hump where, mm-hmm. um, you know, the agreement was made that while we haven't come to an agreement yet, we're gonna. We're going to take this to the next logical step. I mean, the, mm. it took two years of, yeah. you know, almost monthly negotiations to mm-hmm. get it done and, you know, years of setup before that. Mm-hmm. But the train had left the station. The Americans and the Iranians wanted to get this done. Do you and, think this was an accident? Like, no. do you think it was a rogue one well, by accident? Was it a rogue group that did this to you? Not think? exactly rogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there are two sets of groups. You know, people like to call them moderates and, mm-hmm. and, and hardliners. It's not about that. You know, there's no Jeffersonian Democrats in the <laughs> right. Iranian system, right? They're yeah. all uh, proponents of a authoritarian um, theocracy, mm-hmm. right? So just let that be. And then understand that there are, you know, Two types of people within that system. The ones who want to see it cut off from the rest of the world okay. as sort of a Islamic, you know, Shia utopia mm-hmm. that will be self-sufficient and doesn't need to um, – it doesn't need to have relations with the West mm-hmm. because the West is bad and gets in its way. Uh, and then there are the, the pragmatists who realize that, hey, you know what? We've got a population that – uh, you know their 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 income is declining. Their mm. prospects for the future are getting worse and worse. Right. Public opinion, even in a country like ours that is an authoritarian uh, system, matters. And um, they want to participate in a global society. And they want to participate I mean, in a global society and economy. And just the the amount of engineers that come out of a place like Iran, totally. You know, there's not enough jobs for these people. There's not enough opportunities. So much talent. So you know, the people that were leading these negotiations are thinking to themselves, you know, we've got five million Iranians spread out around the world. Iranians in the U.S. are, um, you know, by most metrics, uh, the highest income, highest mm-hmm. educated, non-European immigrant group, you know? Yeah. You don't find Iranians that are uh, struggling unless they're entrepreneurs that, you know, failed in their sure. in their businesses, right? I mean, the education is key. It's just mm-hmm. part of what um, 
pushes us. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the group that took me was of that that former group within the, the regime that didn't want to see these negotiations work. Mm-hmm. And they looked at taking me as one part of uh, a broader plan to do whatever they could to scuttle that deal before it was even made. And, you know, from the beginning, I'm telling these guys, hey, guys, I can see that you want – you know, you hate – your internal adversaries like President Rouhani and the foreign minister Zarif mm-hmm. and you hate America and all that. But, you know, you should be working on those guys, <laughs> right. not on me, right. because that deal is happening, mm-hmm. right? It's It might take six months. It might take a year, but it's going to happen. Did you have much awareness of that deal when you were there? I don't Working know. there? Yeah, no, when you were in prison. Yes. So after solitary confinement, mm-hmm. I did. Uh, I, you know, for solitary confinement. How long were you in solitary? Seven weeks. Okay. So what did, before you go, on, what is solitary confinement like? Sol- like I, that is one of the hardest things to relate to because even the way it's depicted in movies, we see it and everything. But I don't know if people understand what's the crazy making part of it. Like, because it yeah. does, it's designed to it's, make you crazy, that's right? That's hundred percent, and right. it and it works. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say before I say anything else, I mean, solitary confinement should be outlawed as a practice mm-hmm. uh, everywhere in the world, uh, including here, especially mm-hmm. here. I remember when, you know, it was a week or two after I got out, I saw a news item that you know Obama had uh, put forward measures to to uh, scale back the uh, the use of solitary confinement. Uh, on minors. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, as a 38-year-old man, you know, this was a tough thing. But, you know, as a 15 or 16-year-old, you're going to lock them in a little cage and leave them there for weeks, months. Of course, people are going to come out and kill themselves. Mm. Because what happens is, you know, you become become pliant and malleable Mm -hmm. in the way that you would imagine uh, an animal does. Do you just drop your defenses? Do you drop, like, what is, there's this, uh, I don't want to get too esoteric. Yeah. But I think the notion of hope is also something that kind of is kind of lives in us as a force field yeah. in some ways. Agreed. And that's what, I feel they try to break down the, hope, the, It's right? 100% a, 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 a way to break uh-huh, that down force hope field. and mm-hmm. cut you off. From reality, mm-hmm. right? Cut you off from information, from um, outside variables, right? Mm-hmm. So that when you are given the opportunity to be with another human, and it's invariably your interrogator, yes, all you want to do is relate to them, right? Wow. Wow. And you know, people have been asking me this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have this very human uh, depiction of your key interrogator. I mean, for a year and a half. We cool. built a relationship. That was I mean, your boy. I mean, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not like I like the guy. No, it's not like that I miss the guy. But, you know, you build a bond. Yeah. It's a disgusting bond, but it's there. And you were careful to not describe it as Stockholm Syndrome. I don't think um, that exists. I mean, in, mm-hmm. in all my conversations with, with therapists who work with this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, the the agreement that, that they all have, whether you know, they have varying shades of what they believe, but, you know, you're, you're thrust in, into that situation. You're trying to survive. Yeah. Right? And in solitary, 
survival means staying sane. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I, I played mental games. I made lists, lists of places I'd been, lists of places I wanted to go, mm-hmm. you know, remembering, you know, what somebody's batting average was in 1987 and then 88, you know, trying to mm. think about baseball and basketball games mm-hmm. that I've been to. Um, what was know, a typical day like? Like, how would it, a solitary day start? So they come by around six o'clock in the morning, bang mm-hmm. on the door to wake you up. Is there any light at all, or is it just There's all artificial light. light? Constant light, like you know, artificial. No light. outside light at all. There are two windows high up on the ceiling uh-huh. that have bars in them, so you know you can tell if it's night or day. You, so you have a sense of night and day. Okay. And then, because that would make it worse, I would think, if you didn't have that. Yeah, so. it could make it invariably, you know, much yeah. worse. Right. Um, then it's like Vegas. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Forever Vegas, right. but real yes. small. Vegas. <laughs> you know? it's like one more says Vegas is like solitary confinement. <laughs> okay, so you wake up. They wake you up about wake six, in the, six in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, they open the uh, the lower slat in the door, and mm. you know, shove a little piece of bread and you know. Uh, a pat of margarine in, and that's your calories for the first part of the day. And are they careful not to say anything? In other words, they don't want. Are they careful not to make sure there's no human interaction? I mean, when, or is there like here you go or something like yeah, that? Yeah, there, there's a little bit of that. Okay, here you right, go, right? It. And then you know you're just there mm. until you know something happens, and some days nothing happens, right? Mm. Um, and you know, I think that there are some international. Uh, uh, laws about letting people out and having some fresh air, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not like they were following these things too closely, but they would take us out for 20 minutes a day and take into a courtyard that was maybe uh, 60 feet by 20 feet wide, blindfolded, right? And you, I'd be allowed to walk from one wall to the other and just straight line back and forth 20 minutes. While you were blindfolded. And you know you could you were allowed to just look down, and there's mm-hmm. three guards at all times making sure that you don't turn to see you know Jesus who's next to you. So you know, mm. I think about that, uh, you know, about the walking in the yard and mm-hmm. the solitary. It was like the low of my life, yeah. right? Like I've been reduced to this. Was there a moment in there, Jason, where you had that I can't do this anymore moment, or did you? I mean, obviously, you got through this and all, but do you remember having a moment where you say, just one more, one more? Or did you ever have that moment? It's like, Jason, we're done. We can't do this. I So I had mm-hmm. a lot of those moments, but mm-hmm. I also had moments, you know, the day that they took me out of solitary confinement, mm-hmm. uh, they told me a few hours earlier during an interrogation session that I was being moved into a cell with somebody else. And it wasn't a choice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but I was thinking to myself— as much as I've wanted human contact, do I really want to know who that person is, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, I would look at the notches. It's like a movie. I mean, you right. know, there are notches on the wall in prison movies because that's what you do. You know, yeah. one, two, three, four, diagonal line. One, two, three, four. It's the same way everywhere. And if you're lucky, you get a poster of Rita Hayworth. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then that, that knife thing, and, you know, yes, yes. make some chess pieces, and then next you thing you know. Get your Shawshank on. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, losing hope wasn't an option. Okay. Right? Uh, I came close. Mm-hmm. And at certain points, they were trying to compel me. You just plead guilty, Jason. Just plead guilty. You'll go home today. Done. You know? Um, but, you know, I didn't do anything. 
I love that a lot of this rests on you talking about avocados. Fucking crazy, <laughs> tell man. Me, tell us about that, because that's one of the most absurd uh, parts of it. And, and a lot of your focus in the beginning was about food. You, you Hey, look at me, man. I like yeah. to eat. <laughs> hey, I ain't mad at you, man. <laughs> Trust me. But uh, I think, is that how you met uh, Anthony Bourdain at the time? Or, yeah. or you were talking with their people about I doing— I was talking about uh, the people about doing a, yeah. a show for years. Yeah. Uh, and then when it happened, uh, you know, we kind of fell into it. And uh-huh. It turned out to be, you know, uh, incredible fate and destiny that uh-huh. we were able to be on that show. But before that, yeah. I, so I, you wanted to bring avocados to Iran? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, my <laughs> point was that in Iran, you can grow just about anything. Uh-huh. I mean, it's got this very rich agricultural history yeah, and good land. Crescent. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, Why? I know a lot of Iranians in America. Everybody loves avocados. <laughs> you know, this predates avocado toast. You know, this right, all right, that. Right. And um, for whatever reason, there's no avocados in Iran. And I, I wanted to kind of unpack that and dissect it and see why. Yeah. Was there some sort of uh, uh, sanctions reason that we couldn't send right. avocados there? Is some Shia Was, Sunni? Is it, exactly. <laughs> there's no mention of avocados in, in the Quran. You know, that's right, like a big exactly. blind spot, man. You know, they yeah. talk about dates and grapes and <laughs> yes. all this other stuff and pomegranates. But you, where's the avocado? You can't draw Muhammad and you cannot have avocados. Avocados, right? And so, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I turned it into this sort of— uh, exploratory investigative mm-hmm. project that I hoped would uh, ultimately result in planting, you know, a few dozen avocado trees somewhere in Iran mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, do a project on yeah. this. Just something to do, right? Yeah. Literally, the first interrogation that I'm having two hours after I've been hauled out of my house blindfolded with mm-hmm. my wife is, you know, avocado, what is this all about? You tell us right now, you'll go home. But uh, if you don't, we're going to assume what we've been assuming, which is that, you know, this is a secret code and that you're the CIA station chief in, in Tehran. And it's like, <laughs> how are you going to make that leap, man? Yes. You know? You're like, what the fuck? What the Seriously? fuck? <laughs> and, you know, and it stuck. I mean, that that stuck throughout the whole time. At some, at some point, uh, somebody from the interrogation mm-hmm. team, and when Yegi was still in prison, she spent 72 nights wow. in prison. Uh, so, you know, two or three weeks into it, uh, they they called up my in-laws. Mm-hmm. And they got my mother-in-law on the phone. Obviously, we've been missing for a few weeks. And, um, you know, there's, they're talking to her, you know, do you know about this? Do you know about that? And do you know that your son-in-law is the leader of the avocado revolution? Oh, my God. And my mother-in-law is like, what <laughs> the fantastic. fuck? Is, no, she's like, what the fuck is an avocado? <laughs> is that some kind of fringe group? <laughs> right, you know, she right. didn't know what it was because there are none there. You know? Oh, God. Um, so it's so absurd, it, totally absurd. And, you know, when but I, menacing, you know, at this, the same time, this absurd menace is what's going on. You know, it's almost like Keystone cops are doing your. So uh, what happens, I think, is they come up with uh, with what you're guilty of. Mm-hmm. And then it's a, a process of of tying those you know loops together. Confirmation bias after that. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, it it almost never adds up. And in my case, it really didn't add up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was really transparent in the work that I did. I always had permission from the Iranian authorities. And I was really clear with everybody about what I was up to. Um, So, and, and, and I think the most important thing is these guys had no idea, could have no idea of uh, how deep a network I had in international Mm -hmm. media 
right? I'd freelance for everybody. So, yeah. you know, people at all news organizations knew me in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they couldn't have known how um, effective the Washington Post would be mm-hmm. uh, in in advocating for me. And they also couldn't know, you know, the the sort of strength and uh, courage of my wife, my brother, and mm-hmm. my mom, mm-hmm. who were, you know, incredible advocates, the sorts of family uh, that not everybody is uh, lucky enough to get. Here's what worries me a little bit about uh, some of the questions that they asked and some of the approaches. Like, are we to be concerned? Like, it feels like there's a certain naivete that exists in some of these types of, um, I don't want to say governments, but, and I feel it's a a sheltering of information is the reason. Yeah. You know, that the way these governments control information. And so I think when that happens, people are more susceptible to conspiracy theories that are outrageous, you know, but also it creates a naivete about how things actually work. Yeah. But. I also feel that naivete can be a very dangerous thing because people will believe something so fully that isn't true. You can control populations like that, but you can also, you know, that can spell disaster on many different levels. So I think that— And I'm not just speaking of our president. Right. No. <laughs> I think that the Iranian uh, power structure is has been filled with people like that uh-huh. uh, on purpose for the last four decades. More and more on purpose, you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, it was that you know they they bring the true believers, mm-hmm. the most naive, the ones who are uh, maybe intellectually uh, bright, mm-hmm. you know, scored really high on national entrance exams, sure, uh, but you know have been isolated mm-hmm. within um, you know the state sponsored systems. Uh, that you know grow these you know mini mini authoritarians yeah right you know iran's got what they call the besiege which is a sort of a vigilante group a neighborhood uh watch and it's not mm-hmm. like those guys in new york city what were they called the oh the, hell, the, the, the guardian angels, guardian angels. Yeah, it's not yeah, like yeah. that not everybody in a red jacket and i always thought it was more about their outfits yeah. than about anything else <laughs> hey man where's your beret you can't be a guardian <laughs> exactly. angel <laughs> so these are guys you know on motorcycles with clubs uh-huh. you know that uh whenever there's any kind of uprising come in and beat the crap out of people right and they grow up to uh, maybe join the Revolutionary Guard. And, you know, like you said, they're Keystone cops, but they're still cops. They got right. guns. They're still cops. They've got a section of a right. prison that's beyond oversight. Um, and they have, you know, people uh, in the in the, in the the system that are all powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and nobody can get rid of them. So, you know, it is very dangerous. And I think the Iranian society is far surpassing uh, – Aspects of of the the the, the, the structures or the systems understanding of how the world works. Mm-hmm. They're they're way more sophisticated than we give them credit for. And you know these days, with the cell phone um, and social media, they have access to everything that you and I have access to. It's filtered, so they need to use a VPN, so it maybe slows down their internet experience. Mm-hmm. But we live in 2019. It's a pretty transparent world. It's hard to hide shit. It's getting harder and harder. Yeah. That's and so, sure. the, you know, the reaction, mm-hmm. which is the same reaction that we see uh, from this current administration here, mm-hmm. is to say, you know, this is not a bottle of water, 
right? right. Two plus two yes. doesn't equal four, it equals five. Right. I mean, it's what Orwell was talking about in gonna, 1984. Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Exactly. Right. Exactly. You don't, you know, you're not smart enough to know what, what you're being fed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really dangerous. I mean, people everywhere I go— uh, around the country, they're asking me, how can we uh, protect uh, press freedoms, free speech? Mm-hmm. How can we push back against what's going on? I said, you know, I don't have all the answers. But what I do know is we've created this atmosphere where all we want to consume in terms of information is what we already believe. Mm-hmm. That's dumb. Yeah. I mean, you know, you remember a time where, you know, two or three newspapers would show up at your house every day and uh, they weren't, they were coming from different points of view. I still miss the LA Herald Examiner, which was a fantastic paper here in Los Angeles. And I think that this is bad news. Uh, so I tell people, you know, and, and, and it, at the same time, people don't want to pay for journalism. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if you really want to, you know, do mm-hmm. yourself and your uh, democracy is solid, you know, go out and subscribe to a national paper, maybe two, yeah. uh, and a local one, right? Yeah. Um, it's going to cost you 60, 70 bucks a year to do that. And mm. um, and you'd be investing in the future of, of free expression, democracy, uh, and hope for this country. I Well said. I could not agree more. I've, I've encouraged people to support um, local uh, Local needs it more than anything. Yes, yeah. as much as anything else. Radio's been a big um, casualty in that as well. Yeah. Local news radio used to be fantastic, you know, yeah. and, and the structure of that was just so great, you know, and now it's just not there. Really. It's not. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think um, bad stuff happens when, you know, local news gets eaten up by uh, regional news, mm-hmm. national news. Uh, I mean— you know, I was talking to somebody who's from South Dakota, and he told me that up until the until the mid '90s, you know, you had several wire reporters, uh, you know, reporting from South Dakota. Mm-hmm. You know, one was reporting on the courts, one was reporting on you know congressional issues, one was reporting on native issues, and you know that that was the norm yeah. all over the country. Now there's one guy that that covers, you know. Uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, uh, and Wyoming. I mean, it's, yeah. it's crazy, right? Plus, it's um, ideological in in ways that it wasn't quite before. Um, I just uh, saw Brian Cranston and Network on Broadway. They did uh, the stage version of Patty Chayefsky's great movie, one of mm-hmm. my favorites. Uh, Mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Right, but it's so predicted at the time. Um, entertainment taking over journalism. Yeah. You know, and and the news division, and part of, you know, I used to talk about this on my show, The Nightly Show, and back when I did the Correspondence Center, a lot of journal- a lot of people in the room did not like some of my I remember. arrows, you know, but I'm like, just trying to keep it real, but I remember, uh, like, I don't think I said this the other night, but I was like, you know, CNN constantly has breaking news, like, on yeah. their screen, and I said, CNN, you literally are breaking news, you know? <laughs> you literally are I love doing that. that, you know? They pay me now, so I can't yes. love it too much, but I love that. You literally <laughs> are breaking news, you know? Yeah. But everything can't be breaking news, you know? What are you exactly. talking about? And then with, with Fox being, you know, state news and, yeah. and people in their belief systems of uh, news has become this performance art now, yeah. you know? Which was so different than how I was growing up. You know, the fact that 
I can't even trust like the news. I, I feel sorry for people who just take everything for what it yeah. is. Well, you and know? you know, and to, to kind of extrapolate it one step further, I mean, there's so much, uh, you know, symmetry now uh-huh. between uh, film and TV and mm-hmm. journalism. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, they've got all these companies set up. Right. That are you know in touch with every news organization, mm-hmm. saying you know, okay, we want to take this story and develop it into a you know five part sure. miniseries, and yeah. you know, it's 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 kind of good for storytelling, mm-hmm. but not necessarily good for reality. Yeah. And the fact that because of cable, you have to fill so much time, you right. know, and keep people's attention. And living in an ADD society, right. how do you keep that dog looking at the treat over here? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and people ask me, they're like, why, why, why are your you know pages always filled with stories about Trump? Uh-huh. Well, click on something else, yeah. and I'm sure that you know the powers that be right. at, at CNN and Fox and the Times and the Post and everywhere yeah. else. We'll switch to something else. Yeah. Right? We follow you. I know. Well, let me ask you this. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, in, for Andrew. sure. Really, it's so nice talking to you. Um, one last question about Iran. Like, what's up with Iran? Where do you think they're headed? Are, do you think they're are headed back to this kind of uh, cloistered existence in the world as a theocracy? Or do you think—do you see a breakthrough, you know? I've seen over the, you know— Almost 20 years now that I mm-hmm. was, have known Iran from up close, there were breakthrough moments, and we missed the signs. Mm-hmm. When I say we, I mean, you know, America, the media, the West. As a possible ally to help that yeah. on its way. Yeah, you know? and, you know, I think, you know, right now we're in a very dangerous moment because we've taken an incredibly disingenuous approach to Iran. Okay. Um, you know— what do you mean by that? Well, Trump decided to pull out of the nuclear deal, mm-hmm. and he decided to pull out of it because of the same reasons he's decided to undo so many things that Obama did. Because he's a narcissistic sociopath. Right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you said it, not me. I can me, say but some you, things. <laughs> but, you know. So, he's an know, existential threat to the safety and security of the free world. That's the rest of the sentence. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he pulled out of that. And, you know, I, I would say that. In one way, it's the president's prerogative to, to, to do that. But in another way, it undercuts our—I our, um, I was going to say moral authority, but we lost that a long time ago. Well, kind ago. of our—at least our credibility. Our credibility to at least, in a big at way. At least stick to a deal. To, to, to a deal that was yes. working. Right. You know, it's kind of—it's it's as though, um, you know, the— uh, uh, I don't know, the Lakers and the Warriors. Come on, man. Careful. We're talking about my Lakers. Well, it's like the <laughs> Lakers and my Warriors decided okay, yeah. to uh, to trade uh, LeBron for Kevin Durant, right? Mm, and do and I then make that trade? But yeah. Probably not. No, but, I don't and make then, that trade. No. And, but somebody would. And then yeah. the trade happens, and, you know, uh, Laker fans are pissed because two yeah. years later they're like, well, we didn't get Curry in the deal, too, so let's undo right. it. Let's send them back. It I mean, happened to us with New Orleans a few years ago where they wouldn't let uh, Chris Paul come to the Lakers. Right. Like, the Lakers, we're still mad at that. So, yeah. but, you know, this is a slightly different <laughs> yes. scale, right? Right. And, you know, the Iranians were, I'm not giving them credit, but they were doing what they were supposed to do under uh, the rules of that deal, right? At least as far as we could tell. 
as far as we could tell, <laughs> right, but you know, our right. own as far in- as we could verify our own intelligence yes. and you know the International Atomic right. Energy Agency. I mean, you know, right. month month after month for the last three years, right. I say, you know, yes, Iran is uh, you know adhering yes. to to what they agreed to. So we lose a lot of credibility. I don't care as much about our adversaries. I mm-hmm. care more about our 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 uh, allies who we've thrown under the bus mm-hmm. who wanted to open up commercial ties with that country. I'm a firm believer that if you open up the commercial ties with Iran, uh, you know, a freer, more open society will inevitably follow. People have uh, wants and desires, and part of those desires are to connect with the rest of the world, to engage in commerce with the rest of the world, mm-hmm. to educate their kids abroad. And, you know, people who send their kids to to get educated abroad in most countries— want their kid to come home afterwards. Mm-hmm. But in Iran, it's like, you know what? Go there and don't come back because there's no future here for you, mm. right? We're not helping that process. Then we take it up another level. We talk about, you know, we are with you in your fight for democracy. There's protests going on in the street right now in Iran. There have been uh, over the last year at a much more rapid rate and more spread out throughout the country than at any time in the last 40 years. We're with you. We're with you. We're with you. Oh, but by the way, we're going to put in this travel ban and we're going to call it not a Muslim ban because we just realized that we can't do that. That's discriminatory. Mm -hmm. But this is a ban on people from seven different countries, five of them Muslim majority. Uh, But if you look at the numbers, it overwhelmingly affects Iranians. Why? Because, uh, you know, traditionally— uh, more Iranians were coming than than people from from those other countries, mm-hmm. whether it was uh, Yemen, Syria, uh, Sudan, North Korea, or Venezuela. Um, and also, there are more Iranians in America than there are people of Iranian descent. Right? Mm-hmm. So they've blocked the the pathway for people to come here. You know, mm-hmm. my attitude is let them come, let them study. It wasn't Iranians that, that flew planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, you know? And, and, and the, the people uh, who, uh, who did that were from a country that we've given carte blanche to to do whatever the fuck they want. Mm. So, you know, I think we, we have to kind of uh, eliminate some of the double standards we have. Same time, the Iranian regime hasn't done itself any favors mm-hmm. at all. No. You know, I mean, they, the whole thing started with the taking of hostages in 1979. It's 40 years ago. That's the the seminal moment, right, in the break between U.S. and Iran relations. Mm-hmm. And they've gone back to that well of taking hostages again and again and again. And you're looking at one of them right yeah. now, right? So there's, there, you know, my my concern, my my great fear is that the, the good people of Iran have no friend in this fight, not the American government and not the Iranian government. So if they really do aspire to a better, brighter, more open f- future, and I, I believe they do, they're going to have to do a lot of the heavy lifting themselves. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, it's going to be tough, and it'll probably take a long time. Can you go back to Iran? I can't. Can I mean, you, I, can, I think – so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still a citizen, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't taken that away from me. Um, I imagine that I could go back, but I, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let, they wouldn't let me leave. You know, I mean, I think they, they, you know, give me another extended stay plan. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that saddens me. It saddens me more than my wife can't go back. Her Mm -hmm. parents are still there. Mm -hmm. She lived her whole life there and they created us, you know, they turned us into boogie people, uh, that, um, you know, uh, have been, 
had our, our lives in that country destroyed. And I think also, you know, my big brother would probably, uh, you know, uh, sweep the leg if, if I tried to go. He's not <laughs> letting me go anywhere, man. Oh, man. Well, thanks so much, Jason. Any ideas about the avocado thing? Or are you going to— Look, I'm in Southern California right now. probably get myself an avocado coast before I get on the plane. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I still—I know now that, uh, that there are avocados being imported from somewhere uh, to Tehran. So I was on to something. There you go. Yeah. You were on to something. Jason Resign, you guys, uh, please pick up Prisoner. Let me tell you something. And as you just said, you're not the only one. No. You know, there no. are other people taken much the same manner. It, some of them sitting in prison right now. Yeah, some sitting in prison right now. And uh, it's a great tale. And I have to tell you, there's so much warmth in here and humor that is, you know, you really humanize this in a way that I thought was really cool. I'm just trying to find the right word because I don't want to say awesome because, you know, but you know what I mean. I you appreciate know. it. I wish you me. best of luck with the book. Prisoner, everybody, go pick it up. Thanks again, Jason. Thanks, Larry.